0: Welcome to the TalkSafe podcast with me, Jess, and my lovely co-host, Emma.
1: We created TalkSafe as a safe space for people to feel comfortable, to share their experiences, and to tackle sensitive topics. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show.
0: So today we have with us the talented social psychologist, Professor Russell Lint, who is the head of human sciences at the University of Greenwich and the co-author of *Masculine Power and Gender Equality*, so hello, Russell. It's great to have you with us. Um, how are you?
2: Oh, I'm well, uh, Jess and Emma. Thanks for thanks for having me along. Well, oh,
0: thanks thanks no, for being here. Thank you for being here. Well, yeah, we'll,
1: we're really. We'll... Oh, sorry, Jess. One of those days. After you. <laughs>
0: It is. Do you know what? We've just been saying before we started this podcast that we're both suffering from baby brain, so please excuse us today. Emma is almost at the end of hers, and I am well into the first trimester of mine, so...
1: So, together are not exactly the best dream team this week. So, so together bear with we us. make one whole person. <laughs> so, we're very sorry, Russell.
0: <laughs> this is also like our 10th take on a podcast introduction. So, we're going with this one regardless.
1: <laughs> so, I met you, Russell, through um, Gershon. And Gershon is the editor for Healthy for Men. And he runs his own podcast called the Podmentary series. And we discussed the sort of line in the sand moment around Sarah Everard and you had some wonderful sort of opinions and takes on things and I just found you really interesting to listen to. So how's about for our listeners we just ask you a little bit about yourself and your role and what you're up to at the moment.
2: Yeah thanks Emma, yeah it was a really interesting discussion um, um, with, with Gershon and, and the yourself now the other guest. I'm afraid I've gone and forgotten her name, but she, uh, she worked for uh, the End Violence Against Women campaign, I believe. Uh, And that was really, that was really quite fun. Uh, So as, as Jester said, I'm, um, I'm Head of Human Sciences uh, at the University of Greenwich and, um, and my research area within social psychology is a focus on the social psychology of gender, but with a particular focus on men and masculinities.
1: Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, I had a really quick nosy at your book, and it was just so impressive. And quite a few of the topics that you cover have obviously been brought to light at the moment, um, especially on the news, um, around sort of the roles that men can play and, you know, um, what more that they can kind of do to help at the moment. Um, I mean, just a little bit about your book really did you enjoy making it and how long did it take you <laughs> and what was the reason behind it
2: it was a collaborative exercise between kathleen stark and myself kathleen uh, is is a prof um in um uh, the university okay. of landau Koblenz, in germany uh, and it followed on from a uh, a workshop or, or conference small seminar if you will between uh, a number of people from around the world in which we were looking at the potential for men uh, to act as change agents for positive uh, gender change and gender equality. Um, So so I can hardly take credit for it, but it it really was a a joint effort in which which comprises a number of chapters looking at that topic, i.e. how men can contribute positively towards change, and indeed some of the challenges of enacting that, of achieving that, in a range of different con- uh, contexts globally uh, you know from uh, sweden through to israel uh, and yeah so i mean i think it's 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 interesting in that it gives uh, people an insight into into as i said uh, the need for but also the challenges associated with that kind of work
0: did you notice that across all countries they have are there different challenges do you think or you know d- for example you know are the challenges within masculinity in Britain the same maybe as the challenges that uh, you know might be going on in the likes of you know maybe France or Germany or you know maybe even the States or further afield Um, you know obviously you know the cultures there's so many different cultures um, even between Eastern and Western is there any correlation between them or are there what were the trends that you were seeing?
2: So I think, generally speaking, you, what, what you'll tend to find in sort of cross-cultural work is that there are similarities and there are differences. And some of the similarities uh, in, in, in trying to achieve gender uh, change, uh, uh, in terms of achieving greater gender equality, is that essentially you have, um, you have different ways of understanding gender mm-hmm. across the world, uh, and that often comes as a surprise to people. So what it means to be a man in one country may not be the same as what it means to be a man in another, and the experience associated with that advice, and, and similarly in the case of uh, femininity. Um, but what is, is is consistent across different cultural contexts is that relationships between men and women are unequal. The practices that we associate with what it is to be a man or what it, be, uh, what it is to be a woman reproduce gender inequality. So those norms, those standards that we identify very closely with either empower or disempower us in very simplistic terms. So those are the commonalities that that you find across culture. What what you find differently is is the specifics of how people understand their gender and the particular uh, to put it slightly complexly, the socio-cultural and political context in which they occur. Um, so, uh, you know, if you took uh, Yaron Swartz's uh, 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 chapter, for instance, where he discusses um, the the politics of pro-feminist men who engage in Israeli high school gender equality intervention programs, the very specificity or the particular uh, particularities concerning those gender intervention programs within Israeli. Uh, young men are, are very particular to Israel uh, and 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 you can't obviously generalize those to different contexts.
0: Absolutely. so I mean as we know, every culture is different. Um, would you say what would you say are the main challenges? as you mentioned there are you know there's definitely inequalities that have that have turned up regardless of country. What can we do you know globally to try and fix that?
2: and i think this is something emma and i discussed in in in, in our recent podcast i think what you know for, people can do different things depending where they're located who they are uh, etc but i think a having an awareness of these issues is important and that's indeed what this podcast is about i suppose and, and other ones in which we we've, we've participated in and uh, you know the moment is right. i think no there's been no time uh, uh, in the recent past, where gender issues have been so prevalent as they are uh, are now certainly in the West, and of course we have to caveat that that you know the awareness of gender issues and gender equality issues uh, are, are quite a Western okay. phenomenon still. It's not a it's not a global phenomenon in the way that we might we might hope. Um, the second is for individuals to get involved, um, getting involved. Is different for men and for women because of the different stake they have and responsibilities they have in the reproduction of unequal gender relations. And if we're talking about men themselves, you know, forming themselves of existing programs uh, and interventions that are pro-feminist or in allyship to 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 gender equality programs or or, or women's focus programs is enormously important and you know, I pointed towards, uh, there are many, there are many, but White Ribbon UK is an example yeah. of uh, of a uh, uh, anti-violence against women campaign yeah. that men can get involved in, uh, but also just informing them of, of of other resources available to them. And again, I pointed out uh, the uk website, which is quite helpful. And then thirdly, ensuring um, that uh, in whatever one does, to 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 act in allyship, or uh, in terms of one's pro-feminist activities, that men remember what they're doing it for, it's not about them, it, yeah. it, it's about yeah. women, and uh, and I think quite often it, the, it always went. runs a risk that, especially men's only groups um, that, that deal with these issues, or, or mainly men's only groups, tend to take center stage, and the issue becomes more about their experiences and those of people who are, are disempowered. And then lastly, and probably the most difficult is for men to reflect on their own um, positions yeah. of power, mm-hmm. even at times when they don't feel they have it. And that's really tricky because most men don't. They don't feel that it's something they they have. They don't feel powerful in their everyday lives. They don't feel advantaged through their gender. And indeed, they may not claim it actively. They might, may not go and seek to enforce their, their privileged position. And so to understand that sometimes privilege comes even when you don't when you don't um, when you're not asking for it it comes because of your scrap characteristics and and how they're treated by society such as in our legal systems such as our, our biased methods of recruitment and i could go on and on and on
0: oh yeah i mean even just in the day to day basis i feel like uh, you know we definitely come across it as uh, you know, as women we i think maybe we're a little bit more in tune with it especially more now at the moment i think maybe part and part because of what we do here at Walksafe and then also you know with everything going on the news and as you said it just being the most perfect time right now to sort of caveat that and and start talking about it I think maybe we are a little bit more sensitive what do you think Emma?
1: I mean I really loved what you just said Russell about you know people not really being aware and I think that male privilege is something that I think you know some people can be very unaware of that they fall under that category or that they could even come off that way because I just think it it, it could be a slight comment or it could be an unawareness and if they haven't been reflecting there's that association well that doesn't apply to me you know if no one's ever mentioned that they could have said something that could have offended them or anything there there could just be a lack of complete awareness and I think that was the one thing we touched on in other podcasts where I think a lot of uh, men genuinely You know, with all this horrible news going on, it they see a scale from zero to ten, and they see ten as you know these awful things that are going on in the news, and they can't identify with that because, of course, that isn't them. But it's the one thing we were discussing recently is there's a lot of that. No, and there's a lot of like grey in the, you know the I don't know one to two to three area where you know comments are made. You know they might stare at you for too long on a bus or just all these sorts of grey zones that I think happen all the time. And that's where I think that most men don't realise they fall under that category. Um, so yeah, I don't know what your opinion of is that really, Russell? Do you can you see that? Can
2: you well, see I, that? I think that privilege is often hidden, in the way that I've described is people don't often see the privilege mm. they have. Mm. And that 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 may be because it's been given to them because of their ascribed characteristics, and you know we can talk about other social characteristics such as heterosexuality or or whiteness yeah. or you know yeah. those are things that we often don't don't accept some of our privilege, but uh, or, or because it's not it, it it's not overt it's not visible to us. Um, but I think some ways in which one's privilege can be made overt is to hear the stories of people who don't who who don't inhabit your social a social category, and in this case, gender. So, to uh, you know, it is important for 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 uh, to for men to 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 listen and and open themselves up to those sorts of stories. And I think we used some examples, didn't we, Emma? I think I used two. And you know, when I was slightly younger, and I remember walking with a, a girlfriend down the street, and she was wolf whistled, and I said, "What on earth is that?" You know, because I'd never come across it. No one had ever wolf whistled at me. Um, and, uh, and 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 you know, I found it incredibly offensive. And, and um, I, 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 for the first time, I, I had a come across it, but b um, that I found how how um, how threatening it was. It was it was it was an act of aggression, not not some form of of um, of, of expressing exactly. Um, and uh, and there have been other instances as well in my life. And I think, uh, you know, talking to your family, female family members, your partner, uh, your sisters, your aunts, your mother, uh, it is really important to try and understand those experiences. Uh, and sometimes quite enlightening for them because they've never had a chance to express these things that they've just accepted as natural and normal. Totally,
1: totally. I mean, that's how Walksafe came about. Um, I Obviously, my husband's got a younger brother and we were all sat around the table and we were discussing our, you know, backgrounds and it's safe to say uh, my experiences from the age of 13 were quite shocking to them as a family. Um, They had travelled internationally um, but had obviously heard of nothing, you know, quite like some of the stories I'd shared And, um, and I know you, I mean... Country to country, well, you know, uh, they then, when they did move back, they were in uh, Cheshire, which could be quite quiet. That's where Jess is at the moment. And um, I'm more of a city girl. So, of course, the opportunities for these things to have happened to me, you can't really compare um, as well as being a female. But um, yeah, there was just such a, uh, yeah, I, I think a disbelief. And I think that's how the whole process really started. Um, was because I don't really think that Richard, the co- my co-founder, had actually had any sort of idea that females kind of went through this on a day-to-day basis. And it was actually through opening up um, that they realised. But even though I know that those sorts of things happened and they weren't my fault, there is still such a feeling of uh, feeling ashamed and maybe... Uh, you know I think you carry it as a female and it was quite hard opening up so I think that's the reason why now talk safe we're trying to have these conversations because I think that like you just said Russell it's kind of the only way that we can sort of break through and make these changes and I think that there is a little bit of safety in numbers when you say Jess I mean same for you yeah
0: I do I think I mean I think the wolf whistling is quite a good example um when we look at sort of you know what people's opinions are when women do speak up and say you know I was wolf whistled that and I didn't like it and I think that you do tend to get from a few sort of males who you know maybe don't really understand well it's just a wolf whistle or it's just this or it's just that what's the big deal you're making a big deal of it but I mean we've myself and Emma have both been wolf whistled at many times in our past as I said from the age of 13 upwards but from a female's perspective you know we get wolf whistled at especially when you're walking alone and what happens when you're whistled at everybody turns around to look so you're then walking down a street where everyone is then turning to look at you so all eyes are on you and all you're trying to do is just get from A to B. You might not be feeling your best. You you certainly don't want to draw attention to yourself. And the problem that we have with wolf whistling, or the problem that I have personally with it, isn't so much, I mean, obviously it is the wolf whistler, but it's actually, for me, it's drawing that attention to me. And that's drawing unwanted attention. I don't want to be you know I don't want to be well you, you feel by doubly
1: judged just... don't you because then you don't just feel you judged by the people doing judged. it you're judged by them yeah, the whole road and you think what if else? you all think I'm not worthy of that wolf whistle How you know yeah. you then feel like everyone's looking at you
2: <laughs> Yeah, I think one of the ways to do it is to say to to, to a person who, who questions its it, the experience you're having is what they think the <laughs> intended purpose of a wolf whistle is as an example. Because a lot of what happens uh, in power relationships, as I say, can be dismissed as as a small thing. Why are you getting worried about it? Uh, often, in more recent past literature spoken about these things in terms of microaggressions, um, uh, literature, they, they're small tiny aggressions that are easily dismissed as you being overly, insen- overly sensitive, etc. Um, and and it would be to say, well, what is the purpose of all for someone? And they say, well, to express that you like someone you know, you find them attractive. You say, okay, so why does it take that form? Why is someone hanging out a car which is going at speed uh, in a public place and making a a loud noise? What function is it serving? Because if it was only a question of saying, oh, I like you, and it was sincere in that respect, they might, they might think, well, I might go over to and say, oh, you know, you know, how are you doing and and whatnot. They probably wouldn't, though. And the reason is they would find that more socially inappropriate. And if that's the case, you might ask, why do you think that's socially inappropriate? Because it's a stranger in a public place and it would be inappropriate. So they resort to doing it in a public place in an aggressive manner. And what they're really doing is not telling the person that they're attractive. They're telling everyone else who's watching, how assertive, how confident, uh, uh, aka what a man they are, and and that's actually what's happening, it's a public performance uh, in which the woman is not being told they're attractive, the woman's being made to feel like an object for the man's purpose of saying how confident, how successful, how even aggressive they are, and I think that's, you know, deconstructing the actual act is not something just small and what does it matter, but what they're actually trying to achieve is quite useful.
1: I love that you've explained it like that because I think we were talking the other day to an ex-met officer and we used the word victims in regards to someone who's gone through something like you know sexual assault or you know just something awful and we all agreed we didn't like the word victim and that actually a word that uh, another podcast used was a target because it's almost like you're being you, you're walking around living your life blissfully unaware just trying to focus on you and whoever is cat calling you or you know uh, being wildly inappropriate in a public place usually they've sought you out they've seen you way before you've seen them they've already got an awareness of what they're going to do in an in, in intention and I think that's really vital because I think victim really does make you feel like I don't know that you just it's a, a weak term I don't know you you feel helpless but target it, it feels more empowering and it feels like well yeah you did have your sights set on me and there was nothing I could have done about that
2: I think, I think the term target is really good. And and one another interactional way you can consider it is that in more normal communication, someone uh, in inverted commas, someone would approach you, and the conversation or the interaction would, would progress much more slowly. So that at at any point, you could disengage and say no, thank you, or uh, not today. So if someone's trying to sell you a newspaper and you say, "Oh no, thank you," and then they they, they leave you alone. In a wolf whistle, the person has predetermined your response, or, or or rather not let you have a response. They've gone from A to Z at high speed in an interaction and not allowed you to say, "Hold on a moment, I don't want you to wolf whistle. at me." Or uh, you know, if they approach you, say, "Hello," you say, "Oh sorry, I'm very busy," and you move on. So it's aggressive in the sense that you haven't followed appropriate social interaction where you've given the other person a chance to say no thank you and I think that's the problem they've treated you and their interaction as a predetermined outcome
1: totally
0: absolutely I absolutely totally agree with that now you know discussing things you know sort of the smaller things on sort of the grand scale of things I say it's small but you know in the grand scheme of things they're not small how do we where Well, I think there's two questions here. Where do we stop this for the future generations? And how do we stop this? How do we break this chain? And whose responsibility, in your eyes, Russell, do you think that should go to? I mean, does that go to the parents? Does that go to schools? Is it, you know, within the government, is it within sort of, you know, we're talking multiculturally should it be, you know, the religious houses, you know the, you know, the churches, the mosques, the synagogues, whose responsibility is it to break this chain and, you know, stop what is going on at this generation?
2: Well, I'd say it's all of our responsibility on an ongoing basis. The responsibility never ends. Um, but clearly in an unequal uh, set of relationships, a person who holds power, holds the most responsibility uh, and that that's important uh, and that that applies to all social relationships including uh, gender that men do have to be part of the problem solving because they're part of the problem or rather should I say that the way that masculinity is viewed as part of the problem um, I mean from my, my perspective um, the, the problem is, is how we conceptualize gender uh, and gender isn't just masculine or feminine, it is gender relations and they relate to each other. So what it is to be ma- a woman is is not what it, want it is to be a man and vice versa. Often, although not always, ordin- they're defined in opposition to each other as a binary. And so when we practice masculinity, we're also not practicing femininity. And when we practice femininity, we're also not practicing masculinity. So we're actually reinforcing the existence of those things as real, as real, natural and normal. Uh, So in a sense, we all have a a responsibility to look at our own gender practices uh, and and the extent to which that's reinforcing this uh, gender relationships, which are predicated on men's power and and women's disadvantage. Um, But having said all that, it's a really difficult thing. People struggle with that because the way people see themselves, i.e. their identities as gendered, is very personally held. And when you ask people to look critically at how they practice their gender, um, they, they find it very threatening and, uh, and upsetting often. Um, but that doesn't obviate the, the, the need for men to take a, an important role in recognizing that they are net be- beneficiaries of a set of gender understandings which privilege them to the advantage of women.
1: Um, So, can I ask, do you think at the moment with people sort of announcing their pronouns and how they would like to be addressed, do you feel that's a really positive step then to then be talking about gender and kind of opening up people's sort of eyes to, you know, what's masculine, feminine, if someone's fluid, do you think that's kind of on its way to helping solve it?
2: Well, perhaps slightly problematically, I mean, what I would say is I don't think these things actually exist. I think they exist gender exists in so much as people experience them how you behave that will lead to certain experiences so uh, if if you follow that logic which one could claim is evident historically what it means to be a man woman has changed over history but it also changes over context Uh, and 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 we know in past there's been more than one gender in different cultures uh, two genders and indeed more than one sex so um these things are, are are things ways we agree on being and behaving in society. And then when we behave in certain ways, we reinforce those as natural and normal. So in in some sense, I would agree, in saying that I think that possibilities are what's empowering. Um, Possibilities, different ways of feeling, thinking and behaving are empowering. So the more ideas we have, and the more flexibility we have, to behave in a way, which is a self enhancing, so improves our quality of life. Uh, and our experience, experiences and enhances our ability to self-actualize uh, our potential as individuals is really important. So long as they it doesn't impinge on other people's uh, 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 equal treatment, and I think that's the really difficult thing, right? So, yeah. and, and that's some of the debate you get in trans issues. Uh, you know, the the, the rather uh, the the heated debate between women and and and, and trans identities is is you know who has a claim to that identity Uh, and uh, those are are real concerns, I'm not sure it's a particularly clear answer to that but that gives you some of the, that shows you some of the conflicts that may emerge in discussing individual versus collective rights and empowerment.
1: Yeah that's so interesting and I suppose given the nature of your work and the fact you work with students and you know um, I suppose topics like this come up for you or you see trends and topics themes rather than topics um, come up regularly do you feel that this is something you're constantly you know subconsciously looking at or finding yourself when you're looking at a group of students do you find that you can observe or see trends or I don't know do you, you find the whole thing still very fascinating do you think that your your job impacts you know, your thoughts on it daily. I just wondered if those two were linked at all.
2: Well, that's a big question. Um, I would say that, um, and I think we, we might have chatted about this previously, I, I think that today's students are, are much more politically aware than they maybe were 20 years ago, certainly in, in, in the UK. And, and when, I, when I first came here to, to do a PhD, I was always quite stunned how unpoliticized students were. And I think that's changed quite radically. And I suspect it's, it's a feature of all sorts of things that happened over the last two decades. Disruption to social and economic systems, which I won't bore you with, mm-hmm. um, which has led to some of these, these sort of things emerging as more relevant. People see the, the relevance of politics again, which I think is a positive thing. Um, okay. uh, as, as long as people are actually, uh, through uh, making politics re- relevant, they remind themselves what that's important for, and that's about equality. Uh, and 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 human uh, enhancing the human condition really and increasingly enhancing the human condition with environmental issues as well uh, which is also important but 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 yes so I think there's been a change in students am I still interested in it yes of course of course I am um I think the longer you're in in a in a in a field the more you sometimes feel frustrated by the lack of change yeah I bet and, uh, you know, these issues are not new. They've been spoken about in different ways, what we call waves of feminism for for 150 years. And I think the change is slow, however, and, and one has to accept that. And I'm sure you guys can agree with me. Over 20 years, I've seen a huge amount of change. It's not we're not we're not there yet, and we may never be there yet, but, but change does happen. And I suppose it's about keeping keeping hope and, and really finding, um, finding um, comfort in the change that one does see um what was the other question you asked me three questions and i've gone forgotten oh
1: sorry don't ask the pregnant woman i don't even think i can remember
0: (laughs) (laughs) do you know it's it's funny that you say how how the changes are small um but you know you do notice them over over a number of years I mean, we see this through, you know, the TV programs that we used to watch when we were younger compared to now. And, you know, there's been quite a lot, you know, sort of the younger generation that are watching Friends for the first time. And, you know, Friends which, you know, myself and Emma grew up with. You know, our view of this TV program compared to the one of, you know, the you know sort of the younger generation and the ones who are, you know, now the students and, as you said, who are a little bit more sort of interested in politics and you know i'd say they're a little bit savvy at that age in terms of politics than perhaps myself and emma were Um, i mean to be honest i knew nothing about politics and still my my thoughts are very limited <laughs> uh i know what's going on with covid but apart from that i'm uh, i'm still i wouldn't say that i was a whiz by any means so i mean i do think it is a great feat that the younger generation is now more interested in how the future is and i also find it very interesting how you know their their views on equality and and in their minds what is right and wrong it it's it can be so different in each generation you know, again and not just the, you know myself and Emma are in our 30s. You know, they're in their 20s but even if we look at our parents, everyone, and you know and beyond our grandparents, um, it, it's very interesting how gender equality is different through the ages. Um, I mean how would you suggest we tackle you know we're talking about having conversations between men and women, but how do we tackle conversations and where do we start generationally?
2: I, I think that's uh, that's very difficult, and I, I think I'm probably going to go back to a rather sort of philosophical answer, which probably you won't like, but ideas are really important and and um, being tolerant to, to, to receive different viewpoints is, is the starting point doesn't mean you can yeah. always choose pe- uh, you're going to convince people that they need to listen to different ideas, but I think introducing ideas and being brave enough to do so in everyday conversations, you don't have to set up a conversation, it doesn't have to be contrived, it doesn't have to be, you know, a a seminar or a podcast. It's about those everyday conversations and interactions that you take part in and finding a way that's socially easy and socially appropriate to broach difficult subjects by introducing new ideas. So I think Emma and I, um, again we spoke about an example of when uh guys are in an all-male group and then they start to, let's say a, 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 a female waiter comes along and um and some sort of crass but fairly aggressive sexual comment is made which you might not feel altogether comfortable with and, and, and you know you can imagine the type of things um people may say and that's an, a, a sexually aggressive act it, it you know it's the beginning of a a sequence of acts that leads to to sexual violence and all sorts of things in terms of the objectification the language used violence in the discussion of what the sexual relationship may look like etc etc now what do you do in a social situation like that how do you call that to account without making it feel like an awkward situation without making your friends feel that there's something wrong with you and this is the feelings people often get and so it's finding it's finding that the, the way to do that and, and you know as an example uh, and this actually came from a PhD student of mine Rose Lobban and she did analysis on it and one of the easy ways to do that is to reflect what the person's just said back to them so to say uh, let's say they say I want to do x y and z and instead of saying come on that's a little over the top isn't it which would be pretty awkward you would say you want to do x y and z and you phrase it as a question because what you're doing, then, is you're passing back responsibility to the person to account for what they've just said. So yeah. There are different ways in which one can do it, but the important thing, crucially, in answer to your question, is to, ha- to, to share those ideas and to challenge um, uh, behaviors that are microaggressive, they're occurring at a very low level, but you know are probably inappropriate.
0: No, absolutely. I can. Com- I completely agree, and you're absolutely right. I think it's a. Uh, it's all about you know, sort of broaching brooch- it with respect, and uh, you know, in a manner that doesn't sort of end up with you know arguments on either side, uh, which are never, never very productive in the end of it. Now, something that we like to ask all of our guests um, is about the past, the present, and the future. Um, so, for example, you know, we like to think. You know, what changes could we have made or, you know, what would we have done differently? And we also like to sort of look towards the future and see, you know, how can we make any positive steps? So we've devised three questions, (laughs) which I am about to about to ask. Um, The first of it being the past. What advice would you give to your younger self knowing what you know now then? Uh,
2: I would have I would have apologised to people when did things wrong more often definitely been prepared to to admit that I was wrong and openly say sorry
1: well that's a really honest you know answer that's great. so nice <laughs> that's, that's really
0: refreshing <laughs> I think that's what I would do too as well to be completely yeah. honest I definitely thought I knew everything when I was you know in my teens in my yeah. own, and, and my and quite
2: own. often you know you've done something wrong but you're not prepared to and actually it's hugely liberating yeah. It is. Yeah. Sorry.
0: It, it is and you get I, I do feel like you gain more respect by saying sorry I mean if you know you know if me and my other half are having an argument yeah he definitely gains more of my respect because usually he's obviously the wrong in the one in the wrong <laughs> it's, it's it, when he does admit he's wrong and he is very to be fair to him very good at doing that I always it always tends to diffuse arguments because i always have to give that to him and say do you know what actually at least you've held your hands up and said i'm sorry
1: or i, I love wrong. that you did a gender and bias there it's always his fault he's a male i, <laughs> I bet no, russell was thinking that. that i'm pregnant and <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> no
0: comment i'm pregnant everything i want okay is I, pregnant. I, I do agree with that though. <laughs> we have nine months <laughs> i agree so yeah no he is uh, to be fair usually it, it's it. it, it Usually, to be fair to him, it is him <laughs> apologising for something. <laughs> um, so uh, the next question moving on is, it's something, again, it's something that I we, we do ask a lot of the women that are on. And I, I do tend, when we do have men, to ask this question, but I also ask another question. So the question we usually ask the women um, is, where do you feel the safest? Now, the reason I'm not being gender <laughs> genderist in any way, it's just that, I do feel that men, you know, they don't sort of feel as unsafe on a day-to-day basis as women do. Or unless you do. But then I also want to go one further and say, and ask you, are there any times that you have felt unsafe?
2: Oh, okay. Well, that's two questions. That's unfair. That is two questions.
0: (laughs) The first
2: is, is yes, I would say a, a lot. And in gender terms, a lot of places unsafe. So, I mean, violent crime actually affects men more than women by men. So, men are the victims of violent crime by men more than women are. So, most male, uh, all-male environments can be very threatening. I grew up in South Africa and um, oh, wow, <laughs> it, uh, it um, you know, as a youngster, you know, going to clubs and stuff, I couldn't go to a club and these were okay places that weren't too dodgy without someone trying to pick a fight. And you know that's an inherently, you know, uh, the number of times I've been, you know, in several times actually, in South Africa but also in London, um, cars drawing up and people just starting to pick a fight, without you having done anything. So violence is endemic with being a male, and um, mm-hmm. and so actually, the environment, you, the public, the public sphere environment is an inherently threatening place. It's not, it's not pleasant. Now a lot of men won't admit that because to admit that would not be macho or, or not. But, it, it, you know, and that's part of the problem in, in the currents of violence. Then you have to posture as aggressive in order to ward that violence off and, and whatnot. So I would say that violence and, and uh, the, the fear of public spaces because of the, the nature of those, uh, the, you know, is, is an inherently threatening uh, environment for men, but it's very different for men than it is for women. Uh, and, um, and, and that's important. Uh, to, to, to recognize again that sort of disempowerment aspect for women as well. Um, so I would say that, that I, I would say that, you know, I, there are lots of things. I think the other thing about masculinity is that uh, men traditionally aren't able to express emotion in the same way. And the most comforting places for men often is that they outsource responsibility for their emotional selves onto female relationships, whether it's mothers, whether it's aunts, whether it's sisters, or indeed, with, it, most often, in heterosexual relationships, they're partners. And um, and so the safety they find is bought at the expense of someone else. Uh, they rely on their female partners, most often, if they're heterosexual, to furnish that safety, that emotional and, and uh, safety. So, and I would say that I'm similar in that respect. And, uh, you know, I'm a product as much of one's environment, everyone else, but uh, I find most safety in my familial relationships and, and my partner. And, uh, and that's not right, but it, uh, I think it's common with most men.
0: No, absolutely. Yeah, well, I that agree. actually leads me very nicely onto my final question, which is what change would you like to see in the future?
2: Well, I think it's a change we'd all like to see. Um, the question is whether it's really achievable. And, uh, you know, if one takes gender as a social category, just like ethnicity, as I said, social class, age, all those are the things that we know are, are, are in which unequal power relations exhibit themselves. I don't think that that power is will ever be eradicated those issues apart from social relationships, partly because, and this is the complex part, they're actually embedded in the meanings we create around those things. Like, you know, it, there is no such thing as black or white, but we create them into being by describing them as something, just as gender doesn't really exist. We create those categories and make them meaningful. I think, in beings, it's to remain critical constantly about how we make sense of the world, and in making sense of the world, who that disadvantages and who it privileges. So, so if you say, um, for instance, and I know this is very theoretical, but it, it is important to understand ultimately that, um, that if we understand men in certain ways, that allows men certain rights and entitlements to walk out at night, to not be wolf whistled, because women don't do that, that's not what women do, and those things are then rights and entitlements that men gain from, but those aren't real things. There's nothing genetically encoded about wolf whistling or walking out at night. Those are things that we decide on. And I think to remain critical of those things and self-aware of them is really important.
1: Well, I always feel you answer everything so eloquently. And we just absolutely loved having you on the show. So. Thank you, firstly, very much for putting up with um, us. We've been two the two ladies. pregnant ladies <laughs> who have kind of not really had our brains switched on fully today. So thank you very much. And, and apologies on that yeah. same note as well. And no, second thank you. Of all, I,
2: it's not often that anyone puts up with me, so... <laughs>
1: <laughs> no we just love having you we really appreciate it it's been it. an
0: absolute pleasure and it's been very eye-opening as well I feel like I always love the uh, the episodes where I feel like I come away learning quite a lot and seeing things from a different perspective um and I you know I love you know some of the answers that you've given us um you know in terms of just sort of looking at things a little bit differently you've definitely changed my mindset in quite a few ways and I, I have to say thank you for that yeah it's been great
1: well Also, thank you to our listeners. You've been listening to the Talk Safe podcast with your host Emma and my lovely co host Jess and the wonderful Russell. Thank you very much, guys. See you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Talk Safe podcast, sponsored by Walk Safe. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Good ones only, please.